The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As I mentioned uh, some months back, we're going to be launching into what I'm going to sort of consider the main teaching series for 2018, which is going to be an exploration of the life of King David. Um, But before we jump into that, I'm going to be doing a a brief uh, three-part series, really, on the essentials, what I've entitled The Essentials, okay? And it's a little hard to even call this a series, because it's only going to be three messages centered on these topics of possessions, our time, and our relationships. And let me just give you a little bit of uh, understanding as to where this conviction for this series came from. Um, As many of you know, last summer I took a sabbatical, uh, took about three, four months off from my church responsibilities. And so um, during that time, I thought like, maybe I'll use this to kind of get in shape a little too. So um, our elliptical machine broke down. And so, you know, we have this treadmill in our basement where Betty is always running on it. And so half of our basement is finished and half of our basement is unfinished. And our treadmill is in the unfinished side of the basement. And it's literally just in this very dark, dank (laughs) um, room. And right in front of the treadmill, though, is just this wall of shelves, these metal shelves, storage shelves. And so I'm running on this treadmill And I'm just staring at this wall of stuff that we have in storage. And I just, I realized something that in about the, you know, 10 years or so that we've been living in this house, uh, we started only with like two shelves. And then we ended up filling those shelves. And so every couple years, I would go to Target and I would buy a couple more shelves. And so almost 10 years in now, that entire side of the basement is rimmed with these storage shelves because every year we just keep filling them with more and more stuff. And so it just brought me back to this remembrance of 2009 when we came out of Africa. And pretty much our entire world's possessions fit in the luggage <laughs> that we brought on the plane with us. Literally our the, the entire sum of our earthly possessions was in these suitcases. And I just thought, like, how in just eight, nine years <laughs> we have now filled this house with all of this junk. And so last summer, I, I kind of went on this rampage in our basement, and I, at least I didn't deal with the family stuff, but just my personal stuff that was in our crawl space and in my shelves, I threw out about 80% of the stuff I own, you know? I was just literally filling garbage bags and garbage bags. It couldn't even all go out on one week's garbage haul. And so for the whole summer, I was just throwing these bags away. I, I filled seven bags just with all the clothes that I never wear anymore, you know? And just donated it all to Goodwill. I had literally... Two bags, gar- like 30-gallon garbage bags, filled with nothing but computer and audiovisual cables and connectors, okay? <laughs> I mean, 
FireWire, PCI, you know. I, I found SCSI cables in there. And if any of you guys are technical, tech geeks, you know what that is, okay? I mean, parallel cables and SCSI cables. And I was just like, what is all of this stuff? And the truth is, I have a long way to go on this project. I, didn't, I wasn't even able to finish it over the sabbatical. And so that's one of my goals this summer is to complete this process of pretty much getting rid of all my stuff, you know? And as I was doing that, I, I was thinking like, how did this happen in my life? How, how did I get here? Um, and I realized it wasn't just my possessions. But there was this sense of clutter and chaos that I realized was characterizing every aspect of my life. From my work life, to my personal life, to my time management, to my relationships that I was juggling constantly. And so during that sabbatical, I began to get this, this deep conviction that somehow my life had taken a wrong turn here. And I'm just consumed by this complexity and this busyness of life that is just killing me day to day. And I longed for a simpler life. I longed for a more streamlined life of focus, something that I could wake up each morning to embrace and not just feel harried and distracted and consumed. So through this brief series, I want to invite all of us to try to deal with the clutter that has a way of filling itself into every corner of our lives and what it might actually look like to live a life centered on the essentials. Now, what do I mean when I say a life centered on the essentials? Let me try to come as close as I can to maybe a definition of what I want to talk about in this series, and it is this. Living for the essentials means, in essence, doing with less so that we can paradoxically live more fully for the things that matter most in God's eyes. Let me say that again. Living for the essentials means doing with less so that we can live more fully for what matters most in God's eyes. Now, there's a couple of things in this definition, a couple of aspects of this definition that I want to highlight before we get into this topic of possessions, what I want to key in on this morning. The first is in God's eyes, in God's eyes. What I'm saying is that from a Christian perspective, we're not actually the judges of what matters most in life. God is. Because even as you sort of hear the intro that I'm giving to this this message series, I think our hearts can go in a lot of different directions. It can start thinking about things like, yes, I want to work less so I can spend more time with my family, you know, or I want to quit this job that I hate so that I can actually live for my true passion in life. You know, I, I think when we talk about living in for the essentials, these are the kind of thoughts that our hearts naturally get drawn to. And these are maybe worthy considerations, is maybe you ought to work less so you could put more time for your family. Maybe you ought to quit your job so that you could pursue your real passion. I don't know. Those might be directions that God leads you to. But what I'm saying is a bit different than that. What I'm talking about is reprioritizing our lives so that it reflects what matters most in the heart of God. 
What does God care about? And what I'm going to argue is that what God does care about more than anything else is to display his glory through our lives. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That would be God's perspective on it. If there is going to be one centering, unifying principle that should guide what you say no and what you say yes to, how you choose to live your life, if there is one organizing principle, let it be this. Does it glorify God? How can I maximally give glory to God? That may mean working less to spend more time with your family, but I'm going to argue it may also mean that your family doesn't go on that expensive vacation this year so that you could use those resources to build his kingdom and actually ask your family to make a sacrifice this year. John Piper says this, God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives. This is at the heart of what I want to share with you in these next several messages, including the one this morning. Living for life's essentials is to constantly ask ourselves, how can I most glorify God by the choices that I'm going to make in my life, that I'm going to make this day? The second aspect of this definition that I want to highlight is doing with less. Doing with less. I don't think it's possible to live a life centered on the essentials and what matters most to God without this difficult process of shedding off the things that actually hinder us from this pursuit. It's interesting, this word priority entered into the English language in the 1400s. That's when it first appears in English. It literally means that which is prior or that which is first, first things. And for the next 500 years, this word priority was exclusively used in the singular in the English language. There was really a sense in which when we talk about the word priority, we're really only talking about one thing because only one thing can be a first thing, a prior thing. But here's the interesting thing. Beginning in the 1900s, we pluralized it. And we began to talk about priorities. Now, I don't think that's just a quaint little history lesson there. I think that speaks to a mindset that entered in this last century. And it was the sense that we don't want to be constrained by a single priority. We want to have the option for multiple priorities. That, in fact, many things are important to me. And so now we talk in the language of priorities. We weren't satisfied just allowing one thing to remain first. And so we want multiple, think about this, we want multiple things of first importance. In other words, we want our cake and we want to eat it too. In our day, we reject the limitation of saying no to things. We want it all without giving up anything. But if everything is a priority in life, then nothing is a priority. 
in your life. To truly say that you have a priority in your life, it means you've got to painfully cut some things out and say no to some things. But we live in a culture and a day and age when we don't want that. We want cost-free choices, don't we? The writer of Hebrews compares this mindset of the essential, the prior, of first importance with the mindset of a racer running a race who sheds off everything that is going to hinder him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Notice that he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So what he's saying is, he's clearly identifying sin as a barrier to running the race. He says, if you have sin in your life, you got to get rid of it. you got to deal with it because that is going to knock you out of the race. And I don't think any of us would make an argument to resist that truth. But what's interesting is he specifies sin, but he also says there are things that are not in the category of sin that still may nevertheless hinder you from running this race. And I think it's precisely those things that trip us up because many of those things may be good things in life. And yet, they are hurting us from running the race. And some of you may know this. In those ancient days, in the days of Paul, the runners would actually run naked. Okay? They would actually strip off all of their clothes and run in the nude because they didn't want anything, not even their clothing, to hinder them from running the race. That is the visual imagery that Paul is giving us of shedding off everything so that I could run this race to win it. I think this verse speaks against a minimalist approach to Christian life that I think unfortunately many Christians adopt of basically looking for any loophole that allows us to do what we want to do and still say that we're a follower of Christ. In other words, it, it, it can sort of be phrased like this. What is the least I have to do in order to still be considered a faithful Christian, right? It's, it's that kind of mentality. What is the least I have to do to still be considered a good Christian? And this writer of Hebrews is actually inviting us to a radically different attitude. Throw off everything that hinders you from pursuing Jesus with a singular passion. Not Show me in the Bible where it says I cannot do that. And if you can't find that verse, then leave me alone. I mean, can you imagine if we applied that same mentality to our relationships? Honey, can we have a talk? Uh, what is the least I have to do to technically still be able to claim that I love you? <laughs> or a child asking his mother, Mom, what's the least I have to do to be considered your son and not to be kicked out of this family, right? And what Hebrews 12, 1 is saying is, 
It's a posture that says, what more can I shed in my life to make my passion singular? Running after Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not let anything master my heart and compete in my allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. We do have freedom in Christ. Paul affirms that. But the question is, how are we using this freedom to get away with as much as possible or to do as much as possible for his glory? Let me see if I could illustrate this in one of the ways that it worked out in my life personally. And it has to do with this issue of golf, okay? Now, I know some of you are cringing right now. But it's okay. Don't worry. If you golf, you're, you're okay, all right? You can be a golfer and be here at ICC. Um, when I was in medical school, I don't know why, but for some reason, I lived in this house with four other medical students down there in Peoria. And we, one summer, just suddenly all got the golf bug. And we actually all had a set of golf clubs. And so that summer, we started going uh, almost every day to the golf range, to the golf course. And uh, we were playing at least twice. I think what happened was the very first time we went out, on the 18th hole, I, I kid you not, I hit this like 40-foot putt, okay? It just went in. Total luck, you know? Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? But somehow it went in, and I think I just, like, I wanted the high of that feeling again of making that putt. And so we were golfing at least twice a week as medical students. And somewhere in the middle of that summer, um, I think the Holy Spirit (laughs) was kind of weighing on my heart, okay? And I just told my roommates, I can't do this anymore. I, I, I can't golf. I can't play with you guys. Because I began to realize how much time and money golf was taking of my life in a very busy schedule as a medical student, studying as well as being involved in church. And But here was the real thing, was it began to take a hold of my heart in a way that I recognized was destructive because all I kept thinking is, when's the next time we're going to play golf? (laughs) That literally is how I measured time, was our next tea time. And I realized this is not right. I have allowed this game to take a place in my heart that is replacing Christ. I am not saying that golf is evil. I'm not saying that if you golf, you're a lesser Christian in this room, okay? You don't have to feel that way like, don't tell Dr. Steve we're going golfing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want that culture at ICC. But I'm asking us this honest question. What consumes your heart? What competes for your love for Jesus? Do you have the honesty to admit when something has gone from a casual pursuit to an obsession, an addiction that is controlling your life? Greg McCown says this, the overwhelming reality is we live in a world where almost everything is worthless 
and a very few things are exceptionally valuable. As John Maxwell has written, you cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. (laughs) I love that quote. You cannot overestimate the unimportance of practically everything. In other words, what, what these authors are saying is, it's like life is a land, um, is a minefield filled with mines which are the trivial. Things that will suck you under and suck you in and yet have so little eternal value and will nevertheless consume your passions. Now, I say this guardedly because if you take this teaching too far, you can sort of get to that place where, based on this thinking, you can eliminate the arts. You can find no place for entertainment and recreation. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think there is a proper place in the kingdom of God to enjoy a wonderful meal with friends, to go out with your spouse to the city to watch a show. Okay? I reject an austere Christianity that has no place for that enjoyment of things. But what I am calling us to is nevertheless still to say, is there a way in which these things are slowly but surely pulling my heart away from God and toward the things of this world? Now, one of the great challenges that I want to direct this toward is this area of possessions. And this will be the rest of my talk this morning. One of the great challenges to living a life for God's glory is the allure of wealth and possessions. Now, before I go on, I want to actually show you a clip from a documentary called Minimalism that some of you may have watched. It kind of went viral on Netflix a couple years back. This was a documentary that was released in 2016. It's not a Christian film. But I think it it does this pretty remarkable job of echoing many of the truths that the Bible teaches about the false promises of wealth and possessions. And uh, similar to that Brad Status one that I showed on Easter, it's a compilation of a lot of different scenes that I assembled together. And so I apologize, I'm not a video editor. And so it's a little bit of a hack job. (laughs) So if it feels a little disjointed, I apologize. But uh, let's go ahead and take a look at this video, and then we'll go on, okay? And I had everything I ever wanted. I had everything I was supposed to have. Everyone around me said, you're successful. But really, I was miserable. There was this gaping void in my life. So I tried to fill that void the same way many people do, with stuff. Lots of stuff. I was filling the void with consumer purchases. I was spending money faster than I was earning it, attempting to buy my way to happiness. I thought I'd get there one day. Eventually, I mean, happiness had to be somewhere just around the corner. I was living paycheck to paycheck, living for a paycheck, living for stuff. But I wasn't living at all. 
at a time when people in the West are experiencing the best standard of living in history, why is it that at the same time there is such a longing for more? American culture has, for the most part, these blinders on. There's definitely this illusion of what our lives should look like, whether it's advertising or your Instagram or Facebook feed. It's this illusion that our lives should be perfect. It's natural to use other people's lives and even imagined lives, you know, the, the confections we see in advertisements as a yardstick. You open Vanity Fair or Esquire and you see very sexy and glamorous lives. And then the projects for most people seems to become, you know, how can I get that or as, as close to that as I'm gonna get? There can be an immense amount of dissatisfaction trying to live that way. And many of us see no alternative but to live that way. I think people buy because they're trying to fulfill this void inside of them. And I know that because that was me. But no matter how much stuff we buy and how many different fads that we try, we don't become a more whole person. We keep looking. This hunger never gets fulfilled. I think it goes to the bottom line fact that you can never get enough of what you don't really want. In other words, deep down, we don't really want more goodies, more toys, more cars. We want what they will bring us. We want to feel whole. We want to feel content. I was 27 years old. I was the director of operations for 150 retail stores. It was December 23rd, 2008. I got a phone call for my mom. I sent it to voicemail because I was in a meeting at 7 p.m. going through this barrage of emails. And I realized I had several voicemails. One was from my mom. and She had been sober for a while, but I could tell in the message she had been drinking. On her voicemail, she had said, Honey, it's me. Can you call me back? She told me the doctors have found something. She found out she had stage four lung cancer. She went through chemo and radiation. But stage four, you usually don't get out of that. I got to hospice, my mom was still in the bed. It was the first time I cried in my adult life. Sobbed uncontrollably. He kept saying, I'm sorry. I didn't even know why at the time I was saying it. It just was the only thing that I could say. I really wish that I would have spent more time with her. My mother's death still hangs in the air around me. And now, during the same month, my six-year marriage is ending. But even while Rome is burning, there's somehow time for shopping at Ikea. See, 
When I moved out of the house earlier this week, toting my many personal belongings and large bins and boxes and 50-gallon garbage bags, my first inclination was, of course, to purchase the things I still needed for my new place. You know, just the basics. A shower curtain, towels, a bed, and oh, I need a couch and a matching leather chair and a love seat and a lamp and a desk and a desk chair and another lamp for over there. And oh yeah, don't forget about the sideboard that matches the desk and a dresser for the bedroom. And oh, I need a coffee table and a couple end tables and a TV stand for the TV I still need to buy. And now that I think about it, I'm going to want my apartment to be my style. You know, my own motif. So I need certain decoratives to spruce up the decor. But wait, what exactly is my style? And do these stainless steel picture frames embody that particular style? What espresso maker defines me as a man? Does the fact that I'm asking these questions preclude me from being a, quote, man's man? How many plates and cups and bowls should a man own? I guess I need a dining room table too, right? And a rug for the entryway and bath mats. And what about that one thing, that thing that's sort of like a rug, but longer? Yeah, a runner. I'm gonna need one of those. And I'm also gonna need... Hell, what else do I need? How do you win? You win by the traditional monikers of success. You win by how many zeros are at the end of your paycheck. I remember I was sitting, you know, in a Barnes and Nobles and I was deciding what major I would study and all I was doing was leafing through this book. It was a book that showed degree versus earning potential over time. And that's when I zeroed in on finance and accounting. My entire life became about uh, winning with a capital W. My entire life became about being the guy that would be respected. Had a series of vertical leaps from my 20s, which landed me to this place in 2008. I'm making a ridiculous six-figure salary. I've got a corner office. And on December 31st, 2007, my boss calls me into his office, and he tells me that I'm getting a promotion. And this is it. This was the game changer. This is me being a junior partner in this firm. And everything that I had ever worked for um, was going to be handed to me right then and there. You know, in, in banking terms, I was minted. And, and I remember just hearing this man say that, and it was just a really bizarre kind of um, ethereal moment where I was like watching this happen, you know, it was almost, and I walked out of his office and I, and I walked back into my own and, and I just closed the door behind me and I just started weeping because um, I realized that I was completely and utterly trapped and that I would never be able to walk away from that amount of money ever in my life. And any dream that I had of living a life of purpose and meaning and, and, and being an adventurer and somebody that would actually take risks and, and live a life that's deliberate and intentional, those were gone. When you see your life scripted out and you recognize that this is not, this is not anything I want, why am I doing this? This guy that's handing me this, I don't want to be him. I don't envy his life. You know, maybe this was never for me to begin with. And maybe if I don't leave right now, 
I'm gonna be that dude for the rest of my life. And I just took the elevator down 28 stories and, and that was it. And ever since then I decided that this life was gonna be mine and it was gonna be wildly, flamboyantly my life. It's interesting. Um, 15% of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels recorded is on money. He talks about money more than he talks about heaven and hell combined. And his repeated comparison that he gives throughout the Gospels is between our love of God and our love of money, our love of things. And it seems to be his way of warning us. So much of your discipleship walk is going to be framed by this fundamental struggle between God and money. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, it says, Then he said to them, speaking of Jesus, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance, in an abundance of possessions. Here's what disturbs me. Is Jesus seems to show so much concern about this battle between God and money. He's sort of sounding the alarm, ringing the bell, trying to get our attention. And I think, truthfully, if I were to think about the church in America today, we don't really hear that alarm very clearly. Um, I think we kind of look at this teaching about money with a bit of kind of, yeah, whatever, you know. I don't think I struggle personally with this. I'm sure there are some people who really have a problem with this materialism stuff. It's not me. And that's the, there's a disconnect there that I think is disturbing. That Jesus makes much of this issue. But I think for many Christians in America, we don't really sweat it very much. It's not my problem. It's not my struggle. And I wonder if it really is because we're all so spiritually mature that we don't struggle with materialism. Or maybe the other side of it is, this is just the air that we breathe. <laughs> we, this is just life as we know it. And so none of us even bats an eye. Uh, just this is the way it is. And I, I look at my own heart and I realize how easily materialism sneaks its way into my heart. I love photography. But here's the truth, is that my love of photography ends up being translated into an obsession with camera equipment. And so, in all honesty, I, I'm always drooling over the next lens that I want to buy. I, I scour the internet for them. And I got this wish list of the next lens that I'm going to buy when I can afford it, you know? Because these lenses are ridiculously expensive. And I'm convinced that that next lens is going to take my photography game to the next level. That's what's keeping me back from being able to go pro, you know? It's the lenses I have. I love cooking. But somehow my love of cooking quickly descends into a love of buying kitchen gadgets. And I don't know when it's going to end. Come to my house one time, and I will show you my kingdom. <laughs> Food processors and immersion blenders and 
meat perforators and sous vide heaters and on and on and on. And I keep looking going, when does this end? I don't, now my problem is I don't have a big enough kitchen <laughs> for all of this junk that I buy. You know, I re- this really hit home to me, particularly about the struggle of life in America because we lived overseas for about five years in Kenya as missionaries. And then it wasn't really until we came back that it struck me how toxic this air of materialism is in this country. You know, back in Kenya, all the gifts that our kids gave each other, I loved Christmas in Kenya because it was all homemade stuff, you know, that the kids would make for each other. And they loved it. They were so excited about it. These, these cardboard cards, these like uh, construction paper cards and stuff like that. Joy used to knit. And so she would always knit these little gifts for our kids. I, sorry, Joy, I didn't ask you permission to post this. So, so I should have talked to you, but this is her and Luke. And she had actually knitted a belt out of yarn and then made a little scabbard where he could stick a samurai sword into it. And that was like the best gift that he got that Christmas. Went everywhere wearing that for weeks. Okay? The most common gift, though, were pictures and cards that they would draw for one another. And they loved them again. Within months of coming to the U.S., all of that changed. And every week, I kid you not, Judah was asking for a different toy. I had things, words entered my vocabulary I had never heard before, like Ninjago and Bakugan and all these things. I go, like, well, I don't even know what that is, Judah. And then he, he'd take me there. He goes, that's what I want. That's what I want. He wanted shoes that had lights that light up. And I didn't even know they made things like that. This is life in America, isn't it? This is the air we breathe. Three very simple principles. I'm going to go through quickly and then we're going to wrap up here. The first is simply this. Guard your heart against the love of money. Guard your heart against the love of money. Luke 12, 15, the words that we just looked at a little while ago. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Jesus is describing the heart of a person that is trying to find meaning and joy. In fact, the entire meaning of life by the accumulation of things. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I'm simply challenging all of us here to guard our hearts against the many intrusions every day that we face that are trying to pull us into a sense that I need that for my life to feel full. I need to buy that in order to be happy. Here's the honest truth. When I first came back from Africa in 2009, I used to watch almost exclusively HGTV and Food Network, okay? I haven't watched those channels in like four or five years. And the reason why I stopped was because every time I watched HGTV, I hated my house more. (laughs) And every time I watched Food Network, I bought a new appliance. (laughs) I'm not joking here. That's literally why I stopped watching these shows. 
is because the subtle message underneath all of that entertainment is this is what's lacking in your life. This is what you need to be full. And so I tried to guard my heart against these things that are trying to stick its claws into me and saying, this is what you need, Steve. This is what you need. Number two is simply this. Store your treasures in heaven. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is saying is wherever you are putting your treasures, your heart will follow. That's what you will long for in life. That's where your hope is. And so Jesus says, put your treasures in heaven. I think the truth is when we satisfy ourselves with the things of this world, it takes away the appetite for God. It does. So that we don't want the things of heaven anymore. And so it's almost as he's saying, you need to learn how to protect that and guard yourselves against that so that there actually is a hope of heaven still in your heart that there is still something to look forward to that will not be met by the things that you can buy in this world. John Piper says, sometimes I use the phrase wartime lifestyle or wartime mindset. I drift into a peacetime mindset as certainly as rain falls down and flames go up. I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I am calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. Listen, this is not a typical message for me. Usually I like to teach something with some kind of profound hook there, you know, that gets you thinking. I'm almost insulted by the simplicity of this message. But I want it to strike all of us with a force that I hope will result in just obedience and action. Because as the weather warms up, that's what's on my heart, is I'm going to go through my house and relentlessly throw out this junk that I think I need. And I am inviting you to wrestle with that as well. How can you reorder the priorities of your finances to express genuine kingdom values and to say my treasure is in heaven and not on this earth. Listen, I'm turning 50 next year and it's caused me to think a lot about my life. And I'm trying to get ready for heaven. I got to sound so morbid. God, you're only 50, man. You, you may still listen. I don't know. That's just where my mind is going is I'm realizing I'm hitting my 50s. And it's causing me to reevaluate everything in my life. What is really important? What really matters? And here is the, the brutal truth is I love things. I love things. I'm a materialist. I am materialistic. And I'm trying to uproot that out of my life so that the things that really matter would be the things of God, the things that he loves. The last one is simply this. Make Jesus your greatest treasure. Make Jesus your greatest treasure. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says this. My people have committed two sins. 
They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If those testimonies in that video clip we just saw ring true of anything, it is this, that when you finally have arrived at that place that the world tells you, gives you happiness, there is no happiness there to be found. No sense of lasting satisfaction. And Jesus affirms that same truth. John chapter 4, verse 13 to 14 says, Jesus said to her, speaking about that woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me just close with this quote by C.S. Lewis so that we can wrap up here and then we'll, we'll, we'll go in a time of closing here. Lewis writes this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. You know, Betty and I have been talking about the fact that after this year, Luke is off to college and we only have Bethany and Judah at home. And once we become empty nesters, we kind of want the reverse of the American dream. (laughs) We're planning on getting rid of our home and downsizing. And just, I don't even care if we become renters again and we're never homeowners again. I just want a small apartment. I just want a roof over my head. And I want to close these final chapters of my life investing in the things that matter to the heart of God. Not trying to build a kingdom for myself. And I wish I could say this out of some sense of heroism that somehow that signifies that I'm a better person to you. But the reason why I feel like I need to do this is not because I'm a better person than you, but because I have personally seen what materialism does in my own heart and how much I put my hope into these things. And in a way, I just want to shed my life of all of these things so that when I finally take my last breath, it is a life that's totally oriented, ready to go home and be with Jesus. Let's pray. So the worship team comes in and closes us. Um, can I just invite you? Like I said, this, this, <laughs> this message almost insults me because it's not the kind of message I like to preach. I like to preach much more profound, kind of philosophical messages. And yet at the same time, I think the truth of this message is one that we have to grapple with. Do I love the world? And has it sunk its claws into me in a way that has derailed me from the race that I've been called to run with passion for Jesus. I asked Pastor Peter to sing the song, All I Have is Christ, at the end of each one of these messages. I've been listening to this song on continuous loop 
as I prep these messages, praying through the words of the song. And the part of the song that just grabs my heart most is the third verse. This says, now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. And then the line that has brought me to tears several times is, oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life.